When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed. I did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you very much and a very warm welcome to you again this morning. Um, my name is Steve. Um, if I haven't had the chance to meet you at uh, Personally, yet yeah, um, I'm the new church planting curate here on the Cornerstone team here at St. Luke's. And it's so encouraging to be able to see you here this morning again in person. Um, and it really is lovely. As I say, I'm still relatively new here, uh, Sarah and I. Um, I wanted to get to know the church a little bit better this morning. And so I thought to myself, what better way to do that than to see what food people love and hate? And so this morning, I've got a list of controversial foods, the top five foods that people either love or hate. Whether you're a fan or not of these foods, they rarely leave you sitting on the fence. So let's see where St. Luke's is at this morning. Thumbs up if you love, uh, if you love the food, and thumbs down if you hate it. Now, Google reliably tells me that these are the, the five top divisive foods. So uh, let's see how we're going to on this. Hopefully the screen is going to work. Great, so number one at five on the list is blue cheese. Thumbs up if you love, down if you hate. 
That's quite a few thumbs up. I'm impressed. Very cultured church here at St. Luke's. There you go. How about number four? This might be a little bit more controversial. This is licorice. Love or hate? Okay. Bit more of a split, but fairly quick. On you know, you know what you like and don't like. How about this? This could be very divisive. Please remain seated, though. This is Brussels sprouts. A few more downward-facing thumbs for that one, I think. Okay. And number two on the list, we have olives. Yeah, this is definitely a downward-facing thumb for me. It's a, it's a no from me. Okay, and of course, most controversial of all, it is none other than Marmite. Where do we stand with Marmite? Okay, there you go. Well, I feel like I know you much better already. Thank you very much. Now, so often, those controversial foods can produce a, a strong reaction in us. And as I said, they rarely leave us sitting on the fence. Well, as we come back to our series in Acts this morning, we see that there's something else that produces a strong reaction, something that some accept and love and others reject and oppose, something that never leaves people indifferent or sitting on the fence. And that something is the gospel. And as we approach our passage today in Acts 17, we see that this gospel message of Jesus well, it causes a seriously strong reaction. Where we'll see new churches planted, communities transformed, and where we'll also see jealousy, angry, violent mobs, and arrests. So this morning, as we unpack Acts 17 together, we'll see that there are two ways to respond to the gospel. And in examining these responses, Luke, the writer of Acts, well, he's driving us to reflect on our own response to the gospel. So as we come to God's word together, let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you again that we can be here in person, that we can meet online, and that we can come to your word together. Help us now, whatever uh, baggage we may be carrying from the week to come, and to listen to what you are saying to us now. Help us to leave this place loving you more and knowing how we can live for you better in the week ahead. We ask this for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, as we dive into Acts 17 and unpack Paul's Marmite message, let me first remind you where we're at. Paul is on tour with the gospel. He and the team with him are on a missionary journey, taking the good news of Jesus from Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. Now, three weeks ago, we were with Paul in Jerusalem, and there you can see it on the map, and they're meeting they, they met there with the gathered church council. And they were making it clear that the gospel of grace, of salvation in Jesus alone, is for everyone everywhere. And in the following chapters uh, that preceded that, well, we see that Paul lived that out as he takes the gospel message on a five-city tour. And previously in Acts, we've seen that the gospel, well, we've seen it spread to Asia Minor, but now it comes to Europe. And we question whether or not this unstoppable good news message would find traction, would be received and accepted in the metropolises of Europe. On this five-city tour so far, we've seen Paul and co. Uh, enter Philippi. And despite the opposition and the challenges there that they faced, well, Rob showed us last week that God worked miracles in that place. And we saw Lydia and the jailer, well, they came to faith wonderfully. So at the end of the first stop on the gospel tour, things 
are looking good. But next stop is Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica would be the first seaport that the gospel was taken to. And this is significant, not just because Paul and Silas could you know, easily access fish and chips at the harbor. Now, it's important because Thessalonica, this coastal city, a hub of trade and commerce, well, from Thessalonica, the gospel could be taken to the whole surrounding area, all those towns and villages. It's such a great opportunity. And at first, things are looking great. And we see this in our passage in Acts 17. We see that Paul teaches the gospel and he proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised king, and that this Jewish crowd before him, well, they've been waiting for this Messiah. This is the one they've been waiting for. And wonderfully, some are persuaded by his message, by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, both Jews and Greeks come to faith. But then comes verse 5. It was going so well, but other Jewish people present at the synagogue, well, they reject this message. And they were jealous. Jealous of the following that this message received. Jealous that this Jesus was taking attention away from them. And so their, their jealousy drives them to round up an angry crowd. Think England fans at the, the uh, finals of the Euros at Wembley, but much, much worse. And this mob, well, they're whipped into an angry frenzy, and they're driven to start a riot. And in turn, this riot is driven to the house where Paul and Silas had been staying, the house where the new Thessalonian Christian believers had been meeting together. But with no sign of Paul or Silas, this angry mob, well, they seize the owner of the house, Jason, and others from amongst these new believers, and they take them to court. Imagine being a Christian for a matter of weeks, maybe even just days. And now you're standing on trial for the sake of the gospel. That is some serious opposition. And so we see the first response to the gospel is rejection, jealousy, anger, violence, arrest. Here in Thessalonica, we see that the gospel is met with serious opposition. And as Jason and the other believers, as they're tried, they're accused of some outrageous things. Turning the world upside down, showing hospitality to those who proclaim this dangerous message, and stating that there is another king other than Caesar. And whilst they weren't disrupting the peace, these outrageous claims, well, they're 100% true. And in fact, every Christian should be guilty of them. Because the gospel message is one that really does turn the world upside down. As the hopeless are given hope, as the dead are offered life. And all Christians everywhere are called to serve the king of kings. And so these young Christian believers are forced to pay bail because of their gospel conviction. Because of this response of rejection and opposition. In verse 10 we see that, Paul and Silas have to wait to the, uh, the cover of darkness to leave the city. They're forced out, and they find themselves heading to a place called Berea. And at this point, I think it's worth considering together for a moment how we handle such rejection and opposition in our own Christian walks. We look to where Paul and Silas are at, and at this point, we might think that they would have been despairing. If we were to place ourselves in their shoes, 
then I think we would find it really hard to keep going. Despite all their, their hard work, despite their missionary strategizing and targeting the seaport of Thessalonica, it all seems to have gone horribly wrong. If you were to, to start a church plant, riots and you know, arrests in your new congregation probably wouldn't be the ideal start, would it? And at this point, we might wonder, is this where the gospel tour ends? But for Paul and Silas, they know that this is where the rubber hits the road. They are unable to keep going despite all this hardship, suffering, and opposition. How? Well, they're unable to not throw in the towel, but press towards victory in the gospel as they recognize the suffering of the king we follow. You see, they always knew that their message would be met with opposition. They always knew that this road would be marked with suffering. Paul's message, when he preached to the Thessalonians, evidenced this. The gospel he proclaimed is that the Messiah, the promised king, Jesus, had to suffer, that he had to die. Our very salvation depended on Jesus being rejected. And this is the very heart of the gospel, a gospel that was so offensive to this Jewish group, a Messiah who came not to conquer Roman rule as they presumed, but a Savior who came to serve and suffer. Paul knows from the Old Testament, from the Scriptures, that the Messiah had to die, that Jesus' death on the cross was not a disaster, but was the heart of the gospel. The suffering servant king dying in our place is the means by which we now have citizenship in his kingdom. And as citizens of the king, we are called to follow him. To follow him. And Paul knows that as he follows in the footsteps of the suffering king, he too will suffer. And we too, here this morning at St. Luke's, well, we need to recognize that if we're going to be serious about following Jesus, if we're going to be serious about following him, then we will also need to be ready to face opposition and rejection for the sake of the gospel. So Paul and Silas, they don't give up and give in, knowing that the message of Jesus always produces a mixed response. Think of that Marmite message. And as they recognize that suffering, opposition, and rejection is all part and parcel of following in the footsteps of the suffering king. Knowing all that, they're enabled to keep going for the gospel. But following on from getting kicked out of Thessalonica, well, they head to a place. They have to flee to Berea. And it's not the most obvious place to go. In the history books, a guy called Cicero, well, he labeled it the city as off the beat and track. So as we read this, it might feel like a bit of a failure. They've been forced out of Thessalonica, and now they're having to make do with backstreet Berea. Is this a retreat for the gospel? And again, we might wonder, will they give up and give in? But here we see the second thing that enables the good news mess- these good news messengers to press on and keep going, and that is to recognize the sovereignty of God, to recognize the sovereignty of the God we serve. It wasn't despite the rejection and opposition in Thessalonica that they were able to keep going. It was because of it, because of the rejection there, that the gospel would advance in wonderful and unexpected ways. As Paul and Silas are forced out of the city, well, they find themselves in Berea. They share the good news of the gospel, 
And those there, unlike those in Thessalonica, well, they receive and accept Jesus as their king. We're told in verse 12 that many of them believed, both Jews and Greeks, men and women. Now, that wouldn't have happened if Paul and Silas had stayed in Thessalonica. You see, God is sovereign, which means his plan is sure. His plan is good. I wonder if I were to ask you what has been the, the key lesson you've learned from this pandemic, what would you say? I think for many of us, if there's one thing that these past 18 months have taught us is that our plans change. If you've been working over this past year and a half, your plans will have changed. Projects will have been scrapped, reimagined, and then scrapped again. If you've been managing the home, your plans will have changed, whether it's homeschooling or isolation uncertainty. Our plans change, but God's do not. And if the, the messiness of the cross wasn't plan B, was, but was the heart of the gospel, then Paul and Silas being forced to Berea, well, that was also part of God's plan, and it wasn't plan B. And Acts is all about this, all about the things looking like they've gone wrong, and God revealing that they've gone much, much better than we could ever have hoped or planned. For us here today, we might struggle and flounder in the, the messiness and uncertainty of life. We can recognize again this morning that God is sovereign, that his plan is sure and is good. And he is working even in the midst of our suffering. Even when we face opposition and rejection for the sake of the gospel, that is when the gospel will grow and go. For Paul and Silas then, they wouldn't have chosen the events that unfolded in Thessalonica, but they trust God, and the gospel has a wonderful impact there. As you think about these two responses to the gospel, where in Thessalonica the majority reject the message of Jesus as king, well, in complete contrast, these Bereans, well, they receive, they accept the message with great eagerness. And what's the cause for this big difference between these two responses? In Thessalonica, Paul revealed to them from the scriptures that Jesus was the promised Messiah. But they rejected this message because they didn't know their scriptures. They didn't examine God's word. But the Bereans, well, in complete contrast, we see that they are of noble character. What does noble character mean? Well, we're told three things about the Bereans in this passage that sets them apart from the Thessalonians. They received the message with great eagerness. They examined the scriptures carefully. And as a result, they believe. And as I've been putting uh, this together and thinking about this passage this past week, I came across this mosaic that's on the screen, which is in modern-day Berea in northern Greece. And on closer inspection, I think it actually really beautifully captures the response of the Bereans here in Acts 17. You can see Paul there presenting Jesus to them from the Scriptures. And their response? Well, they receive the message with eagerness. They examine the Scriptures carefully, and they discuss with one another. They discuss with one another and they scrutinize and reflect so that ultimately they believe. 
to accept Jesus as King and Savior. And as we draw to a close this morning, I think it'd be really helpful for us here to think about what this looks like at St. Luke's and how we can be more Berean in our outlook. So the Bereans are, are eager to receive the gospel. What might that practically look like for us? Well, it will look like coming to St. Luke's, eagerly receiving God's word as it is opened up to us. But it will also not be not allowing this Berean attitude to end on Sunday at 11.45, but rather taking this attitude with us throughout the week. Imagine what it would look like for you, rather than starting and ending your day by scrolling on our phones or, or watching the news, but instead being hungry for what God has to say to us and daily spending time with him in his word, like the Bereans eagerly accepting this message. We're also told that the Bereans examined the scriptures. What might that practically look like for us? Well, it might look like coming to church with our Bibles open. I know we don't have pew Bibles at the moment, so maybe over the next couple of weeks, come with a Bible open or open on an app so that we can examine the text together. And we can keep those here at the front honest. Does their preaching capture and explain God's word powerfully? Does it reflect that this word is precious? Is it faithful? And we can ask questions, can't we, and discuss what we've heard. And perhaps over the next coming weeks and months, we can get involved again in house groups and dig deeper into the text together. There are so many ways that we can be looking to follow the example of the Bereans. And it'd be great to hear some more ideas from you after the service as well. For the Bereans, this engagement, this acceptance, this digging deeper mentality, well, it has an immediate effect on their community. You see, they're now invested in the gospel work. In our final verses, in verses 13 to 15, we see that on hearing that an angry mob had come all the way from Thessalonica, they've traveled the 40 miles and caught up with Paul. Well, the Berean believers, they want to protect Paul. They want to enable him to continue on this gospel tour, spreading the good news. And so they quickly get him away, escorting him all the way down to Athens, where we'll be next week as we continue our gospel tour. But for now, we can see, can't we, that in a matter of days, the gospel has taken root in the lives of these Berean believers. And now they're invested. So for us again, what will this look like? If we're engaging in the gospel in this way, questioning, scrutinizing, examining, digging deeper, then we too will be impacted and invest in the gospel. For the Bereans, it looked like protecting and enabling Paul. For us, it might look like supporting and encouraging those in gospel-sharing ministry. So whether it's prayer, financial support, getting behind projects, serving on teams, or even considering being involved in a new church plant in Thermiston next year, we too can be invested in the gospel like the Bereans and live out the good news that we know to be ours. So, two responses to the gospel. And that question, how will you respond to the gospel? Reject and oppose, or will you eagerly accept and carefully examine God's precious word 
and believe and trust in Jesus as your king. And with Jesus as our suffering king, we can face opposition and rejection knowing that God is sovereign, that his plan really is good and really is sure. So let's follow the examples set by Paul and the Bereans, digging deeper into the gospel, and let's carry on the spread of the good news of Jesus. Let me pray as I close. Father God, we thank you for all that you have shown us from your word this morning. We thank you that we have that good news to celebrate, that Jesus is our Savior and our King. We thank you for the example of Paul and the Bereans of being able to carry on even when they faced opposition and it was tough because they had accepted that good news message, because they were trusting your sovereignty and your plan. Help us as we leave St. Luke's this morning to do that in the week and the months ahead, to be trusting you as we proclaim that good news to those around us. Help us to do this for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.